I'm gay. And I'm your host, Geraldo Rivera. You're tuned in to episode 22 of Geraldo's Edge Game. Congratulations. Thanks for being here. The last episode felt really good. It felt really, really spectacular, really, to be myself for once, um, to really let my guard down and, um, and just be real. And I, I think you guys really appreciate it. The, the numbers show, uh, you guys really like when I'm just myself. I, 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 I've been playing a character all along and I, I didn't need to, who knew? Part of being, um, the real me made me think a lot about who, who I really, you know, who am I? What is my identity in this day and age in 2022? Um, clearly we, we talk a lot about our own identities, other identities, everyone else's identities. It's very important how you identify. And I wasn't sure, you know, I, for a long time I've identified as, as a simple Filipino Italian man. Okay. And has that been the real me? Yes. For a while. I, I think that I lived a truly gabagool combo life with my lumpia my lumpia life you know i think i think those mesh pretty well um you know the future is eurasian according to buzzfeed and as much as i want to be a part of that that eurasian future i just think it's it doesn't serve me anymore it doesn't feel right and I, I just feel that my life is progressing in another direction. And I, I don't think it needs either Italian nor Filipino. Okay. I, I've, I've struggled, I think, to continue identifying with either. I, I don't relate to Filipinos. I, I don't relate to Italians. I like pasta, but who fucking doesn't? Okay. Now... I spent a lot of time reflecting and if you know me well enough, I think you already know where I'm going with this. And I know, I know this may seem, I, I, I know this may seem disingenuous, but this is actually something I really believe in. And I, I feel full heartedly um, passionate about. Okay. And I don't think it's really my place yet to discuss the meaning and the implications of what I intend to do. 
I think it'll be better illustrated um, through an author of my choosing, someone that has inspired me uh, for at least the past five, six, seven years to really think about what is identity? Who am I? What is my ID? But first I want to write, <laughs> I want to share something I wrote and hope it helps you understand a little bit more about my personal journey. Let me know if you relate in the comments, please. Peace family. I know most of you who personally know me are in disbelief to hear from media reports that I am suspected of committing such horrendous acts of violence. You are thinking to yourself that this is completely out of character of the man you knew who was always positive, encouraging, and wore a smile wherever he was. Yes, this does seem to be out of character, but I ask that you finish reading before you make that decision. I know I will be vilified by the media and police, unfortunately. I see my actions as a necessary evil that I do not wish to partake in, nor do I enjoy partaking in, but must partake in in order to create substantial change within America's police forces and judicial system. Right now, there is a unseen and concealed war within America's police force between good cops and bad cops. And the way the current system is set up, it protects all cops, whether good or bad, right or wrong. Instead of punishing bad cops and holding them accountable for their actions. And when good cops do try and stand up, speak out, and point out the wrongs and criminal acts of, of bad cops, they get reprimanded, harassed, blackballed, or blacklisted, or all of these and more. thus creating a perpetual systematic fertile ground for bad cops to flourish, excel, and go unpunished in. Period. Therefore, I must bring the same destruction that bad cops continue to inflict upon my people, upon bad cops as well as good cops, in hopes that the good cops, which are the majority, will be able to stand together to enact justice and punishment against bad cops because right now the police force and current judicial system is not doing so. Therefore, now if the bad cops lawmakers, and justice system leaders care about the welfare, families, and well-being of their fellow good cops, then they, bad cops, 
will quit committing criminal acts against melanated people and the people in general. If not my people and the people in general will continue to strike back against all cops until we see that bad cops are no longer protected and allowed to flourish because until this happens, we, the people cannot differentiate the, the good from the bad protected and unpunished bad cop forces, melanated peoples who label the good cops as potential threats to the safety and well-being of our women, family, and children. Good cops, I ask that you help change the situation that we find ourselves in by starting from within the force and making an impact in there. For the sake of preventing future loss of life, rather it be from the hand of bad cops, upon melanated people or from the hand of the people upon good cops i do not ask but order with and by the power of the people behind me for all bad cops to be punished swiftly completely and unhesitatingly and for all unethical police practices and procedures to cease immediately Condolences to my people and their loved ones who have been victims at the hands of bad cops for decades. And condolences to the good cops and their families as well. And special salute, dollar sign. Thank you to the brave cops that have already identified and spoke up against bad cops and racist unjust practices. The list of good cops include, but are not limited to, <sighs> Officer Edwin Raymond and to the approximate 10 other officers who are coming forward against Illegal practices of the NYPD targeting my people unethically. Salute to Officer Nakia Jones, Officer Joe Crystal, fellow Marine and ex-cop Michael Wood, retired Captain Ray Lewis, former police chief Norm Stamper, Officer Billy Ray Fields, and Officer Frank Serpico, and every other officer who stands up and protects and serves and upholds their oath, even if it's protecting the people from one of their fellow officers. Sincerely, love, Cosmo. A sacrifice for my people and a sacrifice for the people. Look up, get up, and don't ever give up. Thank you. I know that was hard to um, to hear. Spoke a lot of truths that um, I think people 
just haven't heard before. And I need you to take very seriously because what I'm about to do is serious. I'd like to take this moment to share some highly recommended reading uh, if you want to further understand this issue. Um, I think it's a good starting place. A lot of people ask me for reading recommendations about how to just be a little bit more aware and sensitive and empathetic with these sorts of issues. Um, and today I'm just going to read you a short excerpt from uh, that book. Okay, here we go. Oh, fuck me. <sighs> People always ask me what it was like living as a black woman, as if I no longer lived that way. As if my blackness were just a costume I put on to amuse myself or acquire some sort of benefits. As if what happened on June 10th, 2015, altered my identity in any way. I'll admit to being thrown for a loop when the reporter from a local news channel in Spokane, Washington, who was interviewing me about the hate crimes that had been directed at me, my family, and then abrup <laughs> abruptly switched topics and asked, are you African American? On the surface, it was a simple question, but in reality, it was incredibly complex. Yes, my biological parents were both white, but after a lifetime spent developing my true identity, I knew that nothing about whiteness described who I was. At the same time, I felt it would have been an oversimplification to have simply said yes. After all, I didn't identify as African-American. I identified as black, capital B. I also hadn't been raised by black parents in a black community, and I understood how that might affect the perception of my blackness. In fact, I grew up in a painfully white world, one I was happy to escape from when I left home for college. <sighs> where my identity as a black woman began to emerge. Forced into an awkward position by the reporter, I equivocated. When he pressed me, I ended the interview and walked away. After footage of this small segment of the interview found its way onto the internet and an article appeared in a local paper outing me, as white, I became one of the hottest trending topics of the day, every day, for weeks. A handful of people expressed their support of me, but they were drowned out by all the shouting, as nearly everyone else on the planet was calling for my head on a platter. 
I understood why some people reacted negatively to the fragments of my story they'd seen in the news. As a longtime racial and social justice advocate, I knew there were certain lines that you simply didn't cross if you wanted to be accepted by your community, whether it be white or black. And crossing the color line was one of them. Because I'd been seen and treated as both white and black, I was intimately familiar with the misgivings both communities had about people who stepped over this ever-shifting line. I also knew the historic consequences for doing so. Shaming, isolation, even death. White people created the color line and the taboo for crossing it as a way to maintain the stranglehold on privilege they've always enjoyed. But due to the painful history surrounding it, many black people had also grown adamant about enforcing it. If they weren't allowed to cross the color line, at least they could take ownership of their side. As such, if you dared to cross this boundary, as I have done, and were exposed, you were put in a no-win situation. White folk would see you as a traitor and a liar and never trust you again, and black folk might see you as an infiltrator and an imposter and never trust you again. As severe as these repercussions were, they didn't dissuade me from taking this journey, for not doing so would have meant turning my back on what I see as my true identity and leaving those I loved most in a vulnerable position. If I've hurt anyone in the process, I sincerely apologize. That was never my intention. To most people, the answer to the reporter's question was binary, yes or no. But race has never been so easily defined. In a letter to Thomas Gray in 1815, Thomas Jefferson struggled to determine what constituted a mulatto, calling it a mathematical problem of the same class with those on the mixtures of different liquors or different metals. In the 1896 case, Plessy versus Ferguson, the U.S. Supreme Court attempted to clarify the existing racial classifications when it established the one-drop rule. Those with a single black relative, no matter how distant, were considered black, even if they appeared white. But this decision only muddled an already complicated issue. If someone who looked white could be considered black because one of his 16 great-great-grandparents was black, but a black person with white great-great-grandparents was still regarded as black. Oh, who cares? What sort of clarity did this provide? If scrutinizing people's appearances can't provide definitive proof of their racial identity, what does? How do you decide whether certain people are white or black? What's the determining factor? Is it their DNA? Is it their skin color? Is it how other people perceive them? Or is it how they perceive themselves? Is it their heritage? Is it how they were raised? Or is it how they currently live? Does how they feel about themselves play a role? And if so, how much? Does one of these questions provide the answer or do all or none apply? And finally, 
Does the idea of separate human races have any sort of biological justification, or is it merely a creation of racism itself? Adding further confusion, the definition of blackness has not only shifted from decade to decade, but also differs from one person to the other. For most, blackness comprises much more than one's physical appearance. It's the culture you inhabit and the experiences you lived. It's philosophical, emotional, even spiritual. Was Michael Jackson black? By the end of his life, his skin was nearly white, and many of his features had been altered in a way that made him look far less black than he did as a boy. But nearly everyone would still respond to that question by saying, of course. How about O.J. Simpson? With his brown skin and curly hair, he appeared black, but the way he viewed himself suggested otherwise. When pressured to pull the race card, he reportedly once said, I'm not black, I'm OJ. An opinion seconded by a helicopter pilot for a film crew that filmed Simpson fleeing the police in his white Ford Bronco on June 17, 1994. If OJ Simpson were black, that shit, wouldn't have happened. She later told the documentary director Ezra Alderman when describing the LAPD's atypical restraint that day. He'd be on the ground getting clubbed. Yes, my parents weren't black, but that's hardly the only way to define blackness. The culture you gravitate toward and the worldview you adopt play equally large roles. As soon as I was able to make my exodus from the white world in which I was raised, I made a headlong dash toward the black one. And in the process, I gained enough personal agency to feel confident in defining myself that way. That I identify as one race, while the world insists I'm another, underscores the psychological harm the concept of race inflicts. Being denied the right to one's self-determination is a struggle I share with millions of other people. As our culture grows less homogenous, more and more people are finding themselves stuck in a racially ambiguous zone unable or not allowed to identify with the limited available options. One of the few silver linings of the media firestorm that followed my exposure is that it sparked an international debate about race and racial identity. I didn't set out to be a spokesperson for people stuck somewhere in the gray zone between black and white, but after my own life was thrown into disarray because of this issue, I'm happy to share my whole story in the hope that it will bring about some much-needed change. I became aware long ago that the way I identify is unique and knew I would need to talk about it eventually, but I hoped I could choose the time, the place, 
and most importantly, the method. Unfortunately, when the footage was the reporter in Spokane asking me if I was African-American went viral, whatever chance I might have had to introduce myself to the world on my own terms while explaining the nuances of my identity was taken from me. Do I regret the way the interview ended and as a consequence the way my story was presented to the world? Of course. But as you'll see, the evolution of my identity was far too nuanced and frankly private to describe to a stranger. How can you explain in a brief conversation on the street a transformation that occurred over the course of a lifetime? You can't. You can't. To truly understand someone, you need to hear their whole story. Chapter 1. Delivered by Jesus. Oh my God. Chapter 1. Delivered by Jesus. We don't get to choose our parents. <laughs> Chapter 1, Delivered by Jesus. We don't get to choose our parents. Mine, Larry and Ruthann Dolezal, met while petitioning the high school principal in Libby, Montana, to set aside a place on campus for students to pray during their lunch breaks. Larry had become a fundamentalist Christian after jumping into a van full of Christ-loving hippies heading west. The van took him from his childhood home in Montana to a commune in Seattle, where he walked the streets and tried to convince others to love the Lord as much as he did. Ruthann's religious fanaticism sorry, was passed down to her directly from her grandfather, the pastor of an assembly of God church in Nampa, Idaho. Ruthann's brother, my Uncle Ben, had a prayer van with supernatural house calls painted on the side, which he and his wife used to cruise around northwestern Montana while attempting to heal the sick and in some cases raise the dead through spiritual warfare. In short, my family was overflowing with, with, with what people in the mid-70s called Jesus freaks. After getting married, my parents bought 23 acres of land just west of Troy, Montana, and on the side of a mountain with a view of the Kootenai River meandering through the valley below. While they were clearing the land and building the house I grew up in, they lived in a teepee made from wooden poles Larry had fashioned from trees he'd felled and canvas Ruthann had stitched with an 1870s treadle, treadle sewing machine. Whether they were still living in it or in a house under construction at the time of my... Holy fuck. Birth remains a topic of debate in my family. But either way, my childhood environment was very nearly the definition of rustic. As part of their Christian fundamentalism, Larry and Ruthann were young earth creationists, a group um, <laughs> that believes the earth and all living things on it were created by God over a six-day period, 
between 6,000 and 10,000 years ago that dinosaurs were among the creatures on Noah's Ark and that all of us are descended from Adam and Eve. Larry and Ruthann also believe that since Adam and Eve didn't have an obstetrician or midwife, they didn't need one either. Just as he'd done with my brother, Josh, who was born two years before I was, Larry took it upon himself to deliver me on November 12th, 1977, without any medical personnel or assistance on hand. And as a result, Ruthann almost died from excess hemorrhaging on my birth certificate. Jesus Christ. <laughs> on, my, on my birth certificate, Jesus Christ is listed as the attendant to my birth. I would continually be reminded throughout my childhood just how difficult my delivery had been for my mother, that I nearly killed her, weighed me down with a sense of guilt I could never fully shed. Compared to mine, Josh's birth had been a piece of cake, or so I was told. It quickly became clear to me that in our family, Josh was the blessed child, while I was the cursed one. This distinction even made itself known in my name. Many readers of the Bible only see Rachel's virtuous aspects. She was beautiful, beloved by her husband Jacob, and blessed to have two children, Joseph and Benjamin, who were ancestors of the twelve tribes of Israel. But Rachel was also a human illustration of the consequences of sin. Angry at her father Laban for tricking her husband into marrying her sister, like many aspects of the Old Testament, it's complicated. Rachel stole her father's teraphim, um, hid them in saddlebags inside her tent, then took a seat on top of the bags. When Laban came looking for the teraphim, Rachel lied and said she couldn't stand up because she was menstruating. Meanwhile, ignorant of the fact that his wife had taken the idols, Jacob issued a curse on whoever was in possession of them. Rachel died in childbirth soon after. Oh, the Bible and its curses. One of the one of the best known occurs in Genesis 9 and involves Noah, his son Ham, and a very drunken night. After Ham visits his father's tent and finds him highly intoxicated and completely naked, Ham tells his brothers Shem and Japheth, who cover their father with a garment while averting their eyes. Noah responded by condemning Ham's son Canaan to a life as a servant of servants. Most curses in the Bible are generational, which means Noah was censoring, censuring all of Ham and Canaan's descendants as well. Although race is never mentioned in the passage in error in translation, some interpreted Ham to mean dark or black, engendered the idea that Noah had cursed all black people. And by the 18th century, this interpretation was being used to justify racism and slavery in the United States. Hmm. The idea that black people are victims of the so-called curse of Ham, that they actually deserve to be treated poorly, remains embedded in our collective psyche to this day. I actually did not know that. That I, too, was somehow cursed, was imparted to me before I could even speak. I nearly killed Ruthann as she labored to deliver me. That my hair at birth was almost black and my skin was much darker than my parents and my brother's was a great source of anxiety for Larry and Ruthann. And added to the notion that I was the lesser child in the family. <laughs> As a child, I cried all the time, earning me the nicknames 
the blue boohoo during a winter in which I primarily wore a blue coat and the green grouch. Different winter, different coat. In the rare moments I wasn't crying, I was running, moving, and dancing, which, because I was female and being raised in a stoic Christian household, were equated with sinning. I was told that if I continued to act that way, living by the dictates of my carnal nature, I would go to hell. Damn, my neighbors are fucking loud. Whenever I misbehaved as a child, Larry and Ruthann reminded me of an incident that occurred when I was 18 months old. Left unsupervised in the house, I fell down the stairs that led to the unfinished basement and landed on the concrete floor at the bottom, breaking my collarbone and several vertebrae in my neck. Uh, most parents would have rushed me to the nearest hospital with tears in their eyes. How did Larry and Ruthann respond? They prayed over me and took me to a natural doctor who put my arm in a sling and advised me to sit up, to rest up. No x-rays were taken, no pain medications administered. My neck proceeded to grow straight instead of in a natural curve as bone spurs fused some of my injured vertebrae together. I've lived with chronic neck pain ever since. Whenever I complained about the injury when I was growing up, Larry and Ruthann told me the pain I was experiencing was God's way of punishing stiff-necked people, an allusion to the wayward nature of oxen, which were the most important domesticated animals when the Bible was written. Relying on these animals to plow their fields, farmers used goads, long sticks with pointy ends, to get them to speed up or to turn. Despite being repeatedly and painfully stabbed, some oxen refused to obey, and as a consequence, these obstinate animals were labeled hard of neck or stiff-necked, stiff-necked. To Larry and Ruthann, my neck pain wasn't a consequence of their negligence. Apparently, it was my fault as a one-year-old that I'd fallen down the stairs because they'd instructed me to avoid doing just that, or even an actual physical injury. It was a reminder that I was too obstinate and willful for my own good and a clear indication that I needed to submit to the will of God. That I should feel guilty for acting in a way that felt most natural to me would remain a constant theme throughout my life. <sighs> Chapter 2. Escaping to Africa. In my head. As a little girl, my skin was pale, my hair blonde, and my face full of freckles. While I may have looked like Laura Ingalls Wilder, that's not how I felt. I loved drawing pictures of myself when I was young, and whenever it came time to shade in the skin, I simply picked a brown crayon rather than a peach one. Peach simply didn't resonate with me. I felt like brown suited me better and was prettier. I could see that my skin was light, but my perception of myself wasn't limited to what my skin could take in. The way I saw myself was instinctual, coming from some place deep inside me. Living in the mountains of northwest Montana, we were about as far away from black America as you can get and still be in the United States. 
The population of the nearest town, Troy, was approximately 3,000, and approximately 3,000 of those were white. We didn't have a television in our house when I was growing up, so I couldn't familiarize myself with the black culture that way. I didn't even know Good Times, Sanford and Son, or the Jeffersons existed until I went to college. I no longer have all the portraits I made of myself during my childhood, but in one that I've managed to hold on to, I drew myself as a brown-skinned girl with black curly braids. Beyond the color of my skin, what's most notable in retrospect is the cheerful tone of the picture. The sun is shining, flowers are blooming, bees are flitting about. And the girl standing there beside them, me, is smiling. This was rarely the case during my childhood. I was a naturally artistic and imaginative, imaginative little girl, always painting and drawing. But Larry and Ruthann didn't condone creativity or spontaneity in their household. I was constantly getting punished for expressing myself. If you're having fun, you're sinning, was the message my parents drilled into my head at a very young age. Taught that my natural behavior was somehow wrong, I learned to censor and repress myself and cried myself to sleep nearly every single night during my tween and teen years, with my face jammed into a pillow so nobody would hear. Besides, who had the energy to smile? As soon as we were physically able to, Josh and I were required to work right alongside Larry and Ruthann, who, like many other back-to-the-landers of that era, practiced a subsistence life's a subsistence lifestyle that kept them laboring from dawn to dusk. In the summer, we cleared brush, pruned our fruit trees and raspberry canes, excavated dandelion roots from our yard, and dried mint leaves to be used in tea bags. In the fall, we harvested vegetables from the garden and fruit from the orchard, shelled peas, pickled cucumbers and beets, cut corn off the cob and stored it in the freezer. Canned green beans and peaches and applesauce made all sorts of jams and preserves, stored root vegetables and apples in the cellar and shot and butchered enough elk and deer to fill our freezer. In the winter, we shelled nuts from our English walnut trees, sewed, knitted, and turned the wool we'd gotten from Bill and Ruth Wagoner's sheep farm and sometimes our dog's fur. Oh my God. And to yarn with our foot pedaled spinning wheel. It was Ruth Wagoner who taught me how to make cheese. After apprenticing at her house once a year, I started making fresh and aged goat cheeses of every variety. I saved up my own money so I could buy wax to make cheddar and gouda. I also learned to make homemade yogurt, an elaborate process that takes an entire day. Making bread was an equally labor-intensive activity with the goal of producing at least one loaf every other day. We were always in the process of kneading, proofing, or baking dough. Just ensuring that we had enough food on the table was incredibly grueling work and it never ended. I was so young when I started working in the kitchen, I had to stand on a chair just to reach the counter. We didn't have a dishwasher, so Josh and I were tasked tasked with washing and drying all the dishes after every meal. The stakes were high. If we broke any dishes, we'd get a beating. The sort of meticulousness that was expected of us carried over to all the other household chores we were required to do. Cleaning the slats of our house, woo, of our closets, uh, doors with a washcloth wrapped around a butter knife. What? Dusting the individual leaves of our house plants and scrubbing the toilet and tub until they sparkled. 
The gardens were my special domain. We had two of them and they were massive. I spent countless hours there as a child planting seeds in the spring and the weeding and watering them throughout the summer. Okay, kind of feels like she's claiming to have experienced slavery as a child. Just my inkling. She's working the fields. <clears throat> she worked on her parents' plantation. I actually enjoyed these tasks because separated from the rest of my family, they allowed me to escape into my own imaginary world. Hidden from view by tall stalks of corn in what we called the long garden, I'd stir the water from the hose into the earth with a stick and make thin, soupy mud, which I would then rub on my hands, arms, feet, and legs as if applying a lotion. Um, covered in this way, I would pretend to be a dark-skinned princess in the Sahara Desert or one of the Bantu women living in the Congo. I had read in a copies of National Geographic, which Grandma Dolezal gave us a subscription to for Christmas one year. In my fantasy, Larry and Ruthann had kidnapped me, <laughs> brought me to the United States, and were now raising me against my will in a foreign land. <laughs> Back home in Africa, I'd possessed the ability to control the weather, but here in Montana, my special power didn't work. Jesus Christ. Imagining I was a different person living in a different place was one of the few days, few ways drawing was another that I could escape the oppressive environment I was raised in. And I would stay in this fantasy world as long as I possibly could. It was never long enough. When I was finished watering the garden, I would hurriedly rinse the mud off my arms and legs with the same sense. of urgency I had when hiding the portraits of the brown skinned girl I liked to draw because revealing her even my artwork even in my artwork or playtime could get me punished even at this age I knew that my instinct that black is beautiful was not a widely shared sentiment when it came to talking about skin color mine or anyone else's I learned to keep my mouth shut I would soon come to accept that I actually hadn't been kidnapped and taken from Africa <laughs> and that I wouldn't be free of my family anytime soon. But the feeling that I was somehow different from them persisted. I felt black and saw myself as black and only later learned that the idea of that blackness was beautiful went against the grain of everything that was being taught in popular culture at the time with black people being portrayed in movies and on television as street hustlers and gangsters and Africa depicted in the news as a place riddled with debt, disease and famine in this one way, the isolation I experienced while living on the side of the mountain in Montana actually benefited me as it sheltered me from this sort of propaganda. Without television and newspapers to stress the perceived superiority of whiteness over blackness, I was left to rely on my own feelings. As a result of constantly having to censor myself when I was growing up, I was a very unhappy child. The only person who seemed to understand what I was going through was my aunt, my aunt Becky, who apparently realizing my preferences gave me black raggedy Ann and Andy dolls for Christmas one year. <laughs> uh, an excellent seamstress, she made them herself because dolls that looked black, or for that matter, any ethnicity beyond white, were in short supply if they could be found at all. <sighs> Given my confusion about my family and my own identity, it was almost a relief when I was told that I would be going to a kindergarten at the public elementary school in Troy. Any hope that I'd fit in better there at, than at home quickly dissipated when I arrived at school in my homemade clothes with buttons carved from elk antlers and a sweater made from dog hair. The difference between me and my classmates was reinforced when they pulled out their bags of Doritos and cans of Coke at lunchtime 
while I sat alone in a corner with a sandwich made out of homemade bread, an elk tongue, and a thermos full of raw apple juice. Adding to my dismay, I was met by a sea of white faces. There wasn't a single black student in my class, or the entire school for that matter, and it didn't take long before I felt just as out of place there as I did at home. What a sad story. Chapter 3, Oatmeal. The origins of just about everything my family ate could be traced to the mountain we lived on. All the vegetables and herbs we consumed came from our gardens. All the fruit from our orchard and all our meat from the woods and meadows that surrounded us. To make bread, we bought wheat in bulk, stored it in a 50-gallon rubber-made garbage can, and used hand-cranked grinder to make flour. We purchased five-gallon buckets of alfalfa honey from the local beekeeper, Ray. For dairy products, we relied on our olds, who sold us one-gallon jars of milk with several inches of cream on top. As a result of our parents' desire to live off the land, Josh and I treasured anything that came in a package and was purchased in a grocery store, as they made us feel like we were actual members of the 20th century world. Larry had grown up with a mother who hated cooking, so instead of pancakes and eggs, she raised her kids on breakfast cereals and orange juice from con Concentrate. Whether it was from habit or nostalgia, cereal remained Larry's breakfast of choice well into his adulthood, which delighted me and Josh because it was one of the few store-bought luxuries allowed in our household. It would be difficult to find two kids who got more pleasure from eating Rice Krispies and Cheerios. <sighs> is this just like... Is it... Is it really just an autobiography or is this like, it was all with particular sadness that I sat down at the dining room table one morning toward the end of first grade and discovered that my usual bowl of cold cereal had been replaced with a bowl of hot oatmeal. Jesus. The kind that came with the occasional husk still attached to the grain. So it promised to be healthy, but I couldn't stand it. It's consistency. CCCCC reminded me of mucus with fish eyeballs mixed in. Raisins had been cooked into it, and there was way too much of it. This combination did not bode well with me, for me. Oh my God, every meal in our household followed the same script. Before it started, Larry would say grace and read a passage from the Bible with the elk hide cover that Ruth had sewed into the binding. We weren't allowed to start eating until he was done reading. I don't want to read about fucking oatmeal anymore. I'm sure there's a great point about Raisin in the Sun... But uh, I'm not going to. I'm going to skip this for my pleasure. Chapter four, Drowned by Religion. When I was nine, I was baptized in the Kootenai River, committing my life to Jesus. I walked into the ice cold water in my jeans. And when I emerged with my teeth chattering, I was greeted by the sound of tambourines and voices breaking into song. Ruthann wrapped me in a blanket and tearfully told me how she proud. How proud she and Larry were of me for renouncing my old life of sin and embracing a new life in the name of Jesus Christ. As dramatic as the experience felt at the time, it didn't change my life all that much, given that Christianity had always been like breathing in our household. I brought my newly invigorated appreciation of religion with me to school, where with Bible in hand, I tried to peddle the gospel to anyone who'd listen. I was on a mission to save souls before the apocalypse and the second coming of the Lord, but my pagan classmates were far more interested in playing dungeons and dragons and messing around with Ouija boards. They teased me that I would end up marrying a priest and dying a virgin. 
As pious as I was, I couldn't come close to replicating Ruth Ann's religious devotion as she became increasingly obsessed with the pro-life movement. She made us watch the anti-abortion film The Silent Scream every year following its 1984 release, one of only two exceptions to the household ban on television. <laughs> Larry's insistence on watching baseball's World Series each fall was the other. We had to rent a TV-VCR combo for these viewing parties. The educational film was only 29 minutes long, but it contained enough horrific images, babies' arms and legs being torn off, their bodies dumped in garbage bags behind abortion clinics to give me nightmares for weeks afterward. Three decades have passed, and I still can't get the sound of one of the fetuses in the film apparently screaming in agony, hence the film's title, Out of My Head. As far as Ruth Ann was concerned, Josh and I were survivors of a silent holocaust because we were born after the Supreme Court ruled in favor of women's rights to have an abortion in the historic Roe versus Wade decision. Interesting. She also believed that Justice Harry uh, Blackman, who wrote the majority opinion for that case, was the devil, and that anyone who killed a doctor who performed abortions was a hero for, note the convoluted logic and hypocrisy, saving lives. She even traveled to Washington, D.C. one year to take part in the March for Life, the anti-abortion rally that takes place every year on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. It's the only trip I can remember her ever taking by herself. Josh got caught up in our household anti-abortion crusade as well. In middle school, he was tasked with debating students who took the pro-choice side of the argument. To help him illustrate his point, Ruth Ann and I made stick figures out of paper, which expanded to form a long chain. Josh taped these to the wall in the classroom where the, the debate was held. Each stick figure represented 10,000 American fatalities suffered in a war. There were three stick figures for the American Revolution, 62 for the Civil War, 12 for World War I, 41 for World War II, and 6 for the Vietnam War. Then in a moment of triumph toward the end of the, end of the debate, Josh marched around the room unraveling a paper chain of stick figures holding hands that was so long it seemed to have no end. This, <laughs> this re represented all the babies that had been aborted and what Ruth Ann referred to as the war on the unborn. Game, set, and match as far as the Dolezals were concerned. As fanatical as this viewpoint seems to me now, it felt perfectly normal when I was growing up because we only socialized with people who shared the same opinions. One of them was Fabian Uzo. We often saw him at church on Sundays and from time to time he would come to our house afterward to eat lunch. God, this fucking, this is disgusting. He was especially fond of the habanero peppers we grew in our garden, which combined with our homemade meals reminded him of the food he'd eaten while growing up in Nigeria. Even though I was now 10 years old, Fabian was the first black person I'd ever met. And this, combined with his regal manner, made him seem like a king to me. I found even the most mundane stories he told about life in Africa riveting. He also had the rare ability to make me laugh, something I didn't do very often after learning earlier in life to suppress it. Fabian had studied forestry at the University of Montana and hoped to get his PhD in the same subject. His goal was to go back to his home country and use his knowledge to improve its environment and economy. Sadly, he was never able to return to Nigeria. When his wife Rosie left the church, divorced them, and won custody of their son, Fabian chose to stay in the state so he could remain close to his son. Despite the allegations of domestic violence Rosie made against him, Larry and Ruthann sided with him. 
In their eyes, she was a heathen who was being controlled by the Jezebel spirit, leaving her husband and falsely accusing him of abuse was the uh, ultimate offense a woman could make against God and the church. In their opinion, she'd committed blasphemy. Larry and Ruthann let Fabian sleep on our pull-out couch until he got back on his feet, and I would often hear him vent his frustrations about Rosie letting Emmanuel watch TV and eat sausage and candy. I often wonder what it was so demonic about junk food. To me, it sounded heavenly, like something only rich people got to eat. Books like Oliver Twist and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory made me realize or believe that one day I, too, might have access to the glorious world of commercial food. But I was in the minority. Fabian's opinion on the subject was shared by Larry Ruthann and Larry's mother, Peggy, a.k.a. Grandma Dolezal, who banished her husband, Herman, to their cold cement basement because of his refusal to give up junk food and TV. He had his own refrigerators down there where he kept soda, beer, ice cream, and candy bars, and he spent hours and hours watching TV and chewing double mint gum, one half stick at a time. It's fucking sick. Herman, or Grandpa Dolezal, as he was known to me, wasn't like the rest of us. He'd been in the Navy and had a tattoo on his forearm, visible only when he wore short sleeves in the summer, and his eyes would light up with a bad boy twinkle whenever someone asked him about his glory days. He had always been, he hadn't always been saved either. Larry had led both of his parents to Christ when he was in high school. But instead of joining the Pentecostal church where people spoke in tongues as Larry had, they joined the more practical and said it church of God denomination. There were other differences between Larry and his father. In our house, we adhere to a God, man, woman, child, animal, planet model of value as presented in the book of Genesis. We were taught that God was the head of the man and the man was the head of the woman. Men were the ultimate authorities making all the important decisions while women had very little or no say, no matter what their hearts were telling them. If you were a woman and didn't have a husband, your father was all the ultimate authority over you. And if you had a husband, you submitted to them, to him. Women who refused to accept their places in the strict hierarchy were considered godless Jezebels like Rosie. Life was much different in Peggy and Herman's house. It was a true matriarchy. Peggy ruled the roost. It was almost weird how browbeaten Herman was. Peggy kept the upstairs dustless, spotless, and for the most part, Hermanless. During many of our visits, we'd barely see him, and when he did emerge from his subterranean lair, the only topics he seemed free to discuss at leisure, leisure, fuck this dude, fuck this so fucking hard. This book is so fucking gay. Uh, being cut off or reprimanded were weather and sports. As a result, he stuck to those talking points no matter how many times he repeated himself. Issuing banalities such as, it sure is nice out today or looks like we're supposed to get rain this weekend. More often, he would stay down in the basement watching TV or reading Sports Illustrated. What the fuck is the point of this? What is the fucking point, Rachel? Oh my fucking God. You fucking cunt. Chapter 5, Hustling to Make a Dollar. (sighs) Being poor is a condition I've known all too well in my life. Don't be fooled into thinking that I was... (laughs) When I was a child, we grew our own food because we were part of some hipster sustainability movement. We did it because we were nearly destitute. Neither Larry nor Ruthann had a college degree or for much of their lives, any sort of dependable job. When I was eight, Larry, in addition to some occasional part-time work surveying land, started working as an EMT. Uh, 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 uh. As I learned about U.S. history in school, I empathize with those who, whose free labor helped to build this country. It never fails to trouble my mind and hurt my heart 
to think that just over 150 years ago in the so-called land of the free, people owned other people. The institution of chattel slavery in America was so horrific it was unconscionable. Millions of black Africans were kidnapped, packed into the cargo holds of ships, and taken to a foreign land where they were mistreated or treated as property. All connections to their homelands, including language, customs, hairstyles, religion, culture, even the use of their birth names, were severed. Families were ripped apart. Women were raped. Malnutrition was commonplace. Punishment for even the most trivial offenses was often decided on a whim and included such atrocities as being boiled in oil or drawn and quartered. Meanwhile, those committing these human rights abuses did so with a clear conscience as they believed they were the superior race. That dubious distinction allowed them to wantonly abuse black people who they often referred to, apparently with no sense of irony, as uncivilized. Apparently. For black slaves to survive such sustained trauma took an incredible amount of inner fortitude and day-to-day -day resourcefulness. Learning a different language while being denied the ability to read and navigating the ways of a strange new culture were matters of survival. From food and shelter to hair and clothing, ingenuity was a skill passed from one generation of slaves to the next. I developed a similar resourcefulness at a very young age. I knew that if I ever wanted to spend any money on myself, I'd have to make it on my own. And after being constantly teased at school about my homemade clothes, I became extremely motivated. I, 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 I can't read this. This is too much. And this draws, a, this really crosses the line for me uh, is Rachel drawing parallels of uh, slave resourcefulness to her experiences as a child. <sighs> this needs to end. Chapter six, chicken head baseball and huckleberry stains. My childhood was riddled with corporal punishment. I got punished so frequently that I began to believe that the derogatory comments about my difficult birth, my obstinacy, and my carnal nature had always applied that I was born evil and was destined to go to hell. For me, sin lurked around every corner and I could never predict its arrival. I was told one of the most disrespectful things you could do was laugh at the wrong time. In fifth grade, a classmate made a funny observation about her teacher in the middle of the class, and I snickered. The appalled expression that came over the teacher's face when he whipped around and confronted me made me laugh even harder. He kept telling me to stop. Blah, blah, fucking blah. This is, what is this anecdote? What is this anecdote? What are these anecdotes? Chapter 7, 13, part 1. The year I turned 13 was full of upheaval and major changes in my life. Like many girls, I got my first period. And soon after, Ruth Ann declared that I was too old to be spanked. I wasn't a little girl anymore. I was practically a woman. She also put an end to the awkward tickling sessions Larry would make me endure from time to time. He liked to poke me in the ribs whenever I walked by him or pat me on the butt with his hand. Especially in the evening right before bedtime, I would say, stop it, Papa. What the fuck? But he would continue to do it anyway, and eventually he would pin me down on the living room carpet and tickle my armpits and neck with his bearded chin. What the fuck, dude? As I tried to squirm away, 
and he prevented me from doing so, he would inevitably come in contact with my budding breasts and it didn't feel right to me. A sentiment amplified by the lingering effects of my uncomfortable experience with Josh. Whoa. Uh, did I miss the Josh's? Hold up. Oh, oh shit. Oh shit. Oh shit. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The worst involves a night we were alone at home when I was 12 and Josh was 14. We spent the previous day picking huckleberries in the mountains and our chore that evening was to clean them and store them in Ziploc bags in the freezer. Rolling the berries from one hand to the other, we picked out any stems or leaves, then dropped the berries into a measuring cup and poured them into the bags. Besides school chores and baseball, Josh and I didn't have very much in common, so our conversation while cleaning the berries was unremarkable until we got on the subject of dating. I had a crush on one of Josh's friends, but my brother informed me that I didn't stand a chance with him because he loved to suck on boobs, and I was severely lacking in that department. His comment bruised my training bra ego. I do so have boobs. Yeah, right. Then let's see them. The idea that I might have to back up my statement with proof hadn't occurred to me. A lump of anxiety formed in my throat as I thought about my body being exposed. Josh started chasing me around the dining room table and I ran away from him half screaming, half laughing. To me, it was a game, not unlike chicken head baseball. I ran clockwise and counterclockwise until I grew exhausted and his catching me came... His catching me came to feel inevitable. In a desperate attempt to keep him at bay, I grabbed a handful of huckleberries from the mound on the table and threw them at him. He responded by grabbing a handful of his own and throwing them at me before resuming his pursuit. When he finally caught me, he brought me to the floor with a well-executed tackle and pinned my arms down with his knees. This was a standard brother-sister stuff. I expected him to tickle me or dangle spit from his lips over my face. I did not anticipate him pulling up my shirt and bra and sucking on my nipples. I fought to get away from him, but couldn't. I was in tears. I was in shock. I was in hell. Only after the buzzing in my head subsided enough for me to comprehend what was going on did I notice the look of disgust on his face. Like I said, your boobs aren't big enough to satisfy a man. He took his knees off my arms and let me go. I ran to the bathroom and cried. When I returned, I couldn't look at Josh. I could only stare at the purple stains on the di dining room's white walls where the huckleberries were... We'd thrown, had splattered. I felt numb, but I knew if Larry and Ruthann saw those stains, Josh and I would be severely punished. Expecting them to return home any minute, we worked together to clean up the stains, but they wouldn't come off the walls no matter how hard we scrubbed. Finally, in an act of desperation, I rifled through one of the liquid or kitchen drawers, found a bottle of liquid paper, and used the miniature brush attached to the underside of the cap to apply several coats over the stains, finishing just as Larry and Ruthann pulled into the garage. The stain left upon my body and mind by the events of that evening had been much harder to remove. Jesus, dude. Okay. Just slip that in there. Okay. It's kind of like the Matthew McConaughey book where he's just like, by the way, my soccer coach molested me. <laughs> uh, where was I? A sentiment amplified by the lingering effects of my uncomfortable experience with Josh. According to Ruthann, I was too developed for this sort of horseplay. And while her injunction was a positive development, I still felt disconnected from everyone in my life, including perhaps especially her and Larry, who I felt were different from me in ways I was unable to articulate. I felt like no one understood me and I was stuck somewhere I didn't want to be. 
Sports provided me with a much-needed diversion. I played volleyball, basketball, and softball, as well as ran track, and I excelled in all of them. My serve and volleyball was nearly unreturnable, and largely because of it, I was named the VIP, <laughs> the MVP. I'm fucking retarded. Even though, like Larry and Ruthann, I wasn't very tall. Jesus Christ, is this more like... Whatever, she plays sports. When I returned to local junior high for eighth grade, I was met with an increasing amount of peer pressure as my classmates had begun dating each other and Larry and Ruthann didn't allow me to participate. They only approved of courtship, a period of time during which a man and woman seek to determine if God's will for them to marry each other. But Larry and Ruthann also made me stay home from school on days when sex education was taught because they were convinced that it was encouraged fornication and fornication led to hell. I was supposed to be a virgin when I got married too. So according to them, I didn't need to know anything about sex until I had a husband, but effectively keeping me cloistered in an unnery, in a nunnery, they succeeded only in making me laughably ignorant. Ruthann believed using maxi pads during your period was good enough, but the girls I played sports with used tampons, so I wanted to as well. I bought one for a quarter in a public restroom, but was unable to figure out how to insert it. I convinced myself I didn't have a vagina. Cool. This incident was quickly overshadowed by an increasing number of uncomfortable social encounters, most of which I involved were me getting mocked for being such a diehard Christian. I felt like I was caught between... Uh, two very different worlds, home and school, and while I wouldn't really belong in either place, I had to choose one. With a threat of eternal damnation weighing heavily on my mind, I resumed trying to sell my homeschooling plan to Larry until he couldn't take it anymore. As my school's first quarter term was coming to an end, he offered me a deal if I could finish the entire A3 curriculum offered by class. Okay, well, I thought there'd be something more here. Well, hey, chapter eight, adopting Ezra... Okay. Well, there you have it, folks. <laughs> Living in color. A lot of people have made up their minds about Rachel Dolezal, but none of them know her real story. In June 2015, the media outed Rachel Dolezal as a white woman who had been knowingly been passing as black. When asked if she were African-American during an interview about the hate crimes directed at her and her family... She hesitated before ending the interview and walking away. Some interpreted her reluctance to respond and hasty departure as dishonesty, while others assumed she lacked a reasonable explanation for the almost unprecedented way she identified herself. What determines your race? Is it your DNA, the community in which you were raised, the way others see you, or the way you see yourself? With In Full Color, Rachel Dolezal describes the path that led her from being a child of white evangelical parents to an NAACP chapter president and respected educator and activist who identifies as black. Along the way, she recounts the deep emotional bond she formed with her four adopted black siblings, the sense of belonging she felt while living in black communities in Jackson, Mississippi, and Washington, D.C., and the experiences that have shaped her along the way. Her story is nuanced and complex. And in the process of telling it, she forces to consider race in an entirely new light. Not as a biological imperative, but as a function of the experiences we have. 
the culture we embrace and ultimately the identity we come to choose. We come to choose. God. this book and I love this woman thank you Rachel